You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, April 18th, 2021 at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. Good morning, church. Those of you that are guests with us this morning, even joining us online, my name is Robert and I am one of the pastors here and I get the privilege of leading our time as we read and teach from God's Word this morning. Um, Prior to beginning the work of planting Redemption Hill, I spent nine months working with a church plant in Raleigh, North Carolina, or just outside of Raleigh, North Carolina, uh, that had a pretty dark, uh, maybe even painful origin story. Um, they, they They started out of a church there in the area that was somewhere around 70 years old, I came to learn. Um, and this 70-year-old church had been there, had been serving the Lord there well for a while, uh, and they had called a new pastor in, and this new pastor began the work back in the the early 90s, mid-90s of transitioning that church into what they considered to be a a more contemporary expression of the church, you know. Uh, Music went from the hymnals to the screen, right? Um, He began to not wear suits and ties, and and that church continued the, the same kind of impact in the area that it had had for, for decades. People continued to come to know the Lord, uh, get baptized, go and serve the Lord around the world. Um, it was doing great things. And, and then about eight years into that new pastor's tenure there, uh, one particular Sunday morning, the deacon board showed up in suits and ties carrying their favorite hymnals. And every single week they came to church, suits and ties carrying their favorite hymnals. When one of the hymns that would be sung was on the order of service and everybody's looking at the screen and singing, they would stand and open their hymnal and sing from their hymnal. Uh, After about six months of this and various kinds of conversations, uh, this deacon board uh, began to go door to door in the the greater triangle area right there. Uh, looking at the membership role of the church that had existed for decades, uh, they had not done a good job keeping that membership role up to date. So they started going door to door to people who had not been to that church in over seven, eight years and telling their story of what was going on in the church that they had not been to in seven or eight years. And then according to the, the bylaws of that church, uh, this deacon board called a meeting of the church together because they only had to have 24-hour notice. And they called a meeting of the church of the members And to this member meeting came over 250 more people than actually attended the church because that board had gone to people who hadn't been there in 10 years telling them what was happening to the beloved church they didn't attend. And that night, right then and there, they voted that pastor out. That pastor became the one who began to plant the church that I was called down to help. Uh, About 80 people went with him that night looking at what was happening and he didn't want to plant a church. That wasn't his plan. year and a half into that church plant, he said, I'm going to go sell insurance. I'm done. I can't do this. The, the weight of it all is just too much. You know, it's not unusual for there to be tension and disagreement amongst God's people. And in the church, it, it's not always suits and ties and hymnals and screens. No. In the same church, one brother or sister feels free to enjoy a glass of wine or a 
a cold beer on the evening and another brother or sister doesn't. One feels free to embrace the local public schools for their children. Another believer doesn't. They feel like they should homeschool their children, while another believer in their community group believes that they should go to private school. That's a little better than public school, but another believer there in the community group believes they can do private school only if it's Christian school. Two brothers and sisters in the same church, in the same community group, one decides that they feel free at their place of work to use the pronouns that their co-workers would like for them to use in referring to them. Another believer in the community group doesn't feel like that would be something they were free to do. One brother or sister sitting in the same community group thinks that the whole idea of masks and social distancing is overblown. Another one sitting there feels like their very church and their community is being reckless with how they're handling it. One thinks restrictions are being enforced too tightly. One thinks we're not caring enough about other people. Sitting there together as a group of believers worshiping together, one feels very strongly that the right to life is a single-issue vote for the Christian. Another believes very strongly there's a lot more factors to consider. One sitting there believing that The church today is dealing with the greatest threat and crisis and and thing of first importance to the church today is the long-awaited reckoning this country has been building up to with racial injustice. Another believes that right now the church is undergoing the greatest threat to religious liberty in the history of this country, and that should be of first importance. Some want to bring hymn books and wear ties, and some want to use screens and wear jeans. I hope I've at least gotten close to your seat with one of those this morning and made you somewhat uncomfortable. Each one of those things that I mentioned is represented by a faithful member of this local church. And that can be an amazing thing of beauty and At the same time, it it could be a destructive beast. You know, there have been two pandemics that have plagued us this last year. One, of course, is the one we're all most familiar with, the COVID-19 virus. But we've also been plagued by a, a pandemic of accusation and blame around every corner. You know, it's never been easier to publicly criticize, belittle, slander, or misrepresent someone and remain unrepentant about it. And and I'm talking about the church. I'm talking to us. I think we've forgotten the eternal realities that are on the line in our relationships with each other. You know, it was Jesus who said, John 13, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another Just as I have loved you, that you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The implication being that 
a divisiveness amongst God's people, a lack of visible, genuine love amongst God's people would obscure the world's view of him through us. He says something similar in John chapter 17 when he is praying for the church and he's He says this, the glory, speaking to the Father, that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Again, the implications are tremendous. I mean, if the love amongst God's people, the, the harmony amongst God's people can be shattered, then the visible reflection of the gospel's power can be blunted to a watching world. Now, would you not think that that would be a key strategy of the enemy of God's glory? Friends, the the lacking of charity, the unnecessary divisiveness, the backbiting, the anger, the lack of patience, the thinking the worst of one another, the resentment, all of those things that we see right now in the church today, they are the strategy of Satan, not the work of God's Spirit. So we best take those things very seriously. Paul did. Paul was encouraging Timothy to. And by virtue of God's word to us this morning, preserved in his letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, he is telling us the same thing. Guard the good deposit. We spent time on this last week. The the ever-present imperative to protect the gospel and the matters of first importance from being damaged or polluted by error pollutants that could could harm the the message of the gospel, the message that is the word of life, of freedom, of joy, losing those things of first importance about Jesus leaves people in bondage. We spent time with this last week, but remember, even Paul recognized that some things were of first importance. Some things had a greater priority than even others, and so we talked about that a little bit. You might remember We talked about theological triage, that there were first order issues of importance, first order doctrines. Uh, I love the way that Gary Brashears kind of outlines this. He says, these are things that we would die for. These are the essential truths of Jesus. Those things that which you would lose, you lose him. First order issues, first importance. Next, there were second order issues, and Again, Dr. Brashears does a great job with this. He says these are things that we would divide for, right? These are doctrinal truths that we see in Scripture that begin to give the shape and contours around the way different denominations, different organizations, and different networks gather. These are things that Christians can differ in their understanding of Scripture on, of scripture on but it does not, does not remove them from the family of God. They're they're second-order issues, and on those things, we need wisdom and balance. And then we saw that there were third-order issues, and these these are things that we're willing to debate for, right? And in these things, we need patience and we need humility. This category is larger than any of us actually think it is, and 
And we talked about this last week. And, and then Dr. Bershears, and so I, I, I kind of pointed you last week to a book by a guy named Gavin Ortland, Hills to Die On. And it's about theological triage, and I love it. Dr. Bershears is, is the head of the New Testament Department at Western Seminary, and he wrote on theological triage too. And he's the one that kind of gave these same orders this different language, things we would die for, things we divide for, things we debate for. He added a fourth order. And he said this fourth order are things that we have to decide on. This is where all manner of issues around in life and living and even social issues of our day fall. And here's the thing, the more passionately we feel about any of these issues, the, the less secondary they actually feel to us, right? And that's when, as a people, we have to return to the authority of Scripture and not the authority of our feelings to sort these things out. See, it's these issues that we have to decide for, these issues that are up for debate on amongst God's people that can give the most space for bitterness to rise, for relationships to be broken, and ultimately for the eclipsing of the power of God at work in his people to be eclipsed. For people not to see the saving power, the transforming power of God alive and at work in his people in the way they love each other, especially in these things. The issue may be secondary, but without the right framework of thinking and relating, it can become very destructive to our own souls, to our relationships, and to the church. Which is why I want us to see very clearly this morning and then think through it together. When, when Paul told Timothy to follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me and faith and love that is in Christ Jesus, I want you to remember what we said about that and then we're going to consider it again this morning. You know, we said it's a very clear statement. It's not very confusing to understand and follow, but when you understand the words Paul chose to use, it kind of makes the verse come alive and sing a little bit. That pattern of words, that pattern of sound or healthy, life-giving words, where that pattern is a, is a standard. That's what that word is used for. It's a standard. It sets the framework. It sets the structure. That's what standards do. Another way this word would be used would be akin to what an artist or an architect might do before they, they, they finish a painting or finish a rendering of a building design. Remember, they'll sketch it all out and the pattern and the standard will be there and you can see what they're doing, but then when you come back to it and they filled it in with the color, with the intention, all of a sudden the fullness of it becomes alive. When Paul is, is telling Timothy to follow this standard of healthy, sound words, what, what he's saying is, there are a lot of ways that we apply these sound, healthy words to the lives that we live, that, that give it color, that give it shape. Following this pattern is allowing these sound words that God has given, that I have passed on, to shape the way that we understand who we are and how we live. And we do it with the attitude of faith and love. Because the reality of it is, we're going to apply the gospel to our decision-making differently than one another. And it's here in these differences that the differences can, if we're not careful, become the tools of division and destruction. I mean, it, it, I mean this in all sincerity. It, the church today is far more passionate 
about masks than it is about the deity of Jesus. You get that? I'm not saying, I'm not, I, I get it. I'm just saying this is the world that we're in. And so we've got to be careful. So how do we keep this from happening? Well, remember, Timothy had been with Paul for years, traveling with him. He had heard Paul not only teach these sound words, not only teach this sound doctrine, not only prioritize and make primary in everything he did, the the true words of the gospel, who Jesus is, and people come to saving faith in that. Timothy had been with Paul, not only as the standard had been set, but as Paul would apply that to people's lives. He had been with him through the whole thing. Timothy was with Paul when Paul wrote the letter to the church in Corinth, that crazy church. As Paul was having to apply this standard of the gospel to various differences in the way people were living out in that church. It was Timothy who was with Paul while Paul was in his first imprisonment in Rome, where Paul wrote what are called the prison letters, the pastoral epistles. It was Timothy who was with him as he wrote those letters to those churches. It was Timothy, most likely, whose hand wrote them. As he wrote the letter to the church in Ephesus, where Timothy now serves, where men and women and children had come to saving faith in Christ from a tremendously diverse set of backgrounds and experiences and had all come under one common faith in Jesus, but now had to figure out how we take that standard of sound word and apply it to the experiences that I'm bringing into this thing and how we live this thing out. It was most likely Timothy's hand that wrote that staggering letter that so many of us are familiar with that we're always going back to that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. Again, a church made up of people with massively diverse backgrounds and experiences seeking to unite around Jesus, that which is of first importance, while applying this to the lives that they live. And If you just think about it like a human for a minute, you can probably imagine they had some fairly significant differences. And so with the time we have left, I I just want us to consider what instruction Paul had already given, that Timothy was already familiar with, that Timothy most likely literally wrote down for Paul, that which would come to his mind in recall when Paul says, don't forget, Timothy, follow Hold fast to the pattern, the standard of sound words. Faith and love that are found in Christ Jesus. What's Paul already taught him about how God's people honor Jesus and love one another in a vast amount of differences? Well, if you've got your Bibles, flip over to that letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. Go to Romans chapter 14. As you're turning there, I'm going to get you there by going back a little bit. If you were to break this letter up, Paul has a habit. If you're familiar with Paul's letters, very often the first half of the letter, Paul is encouraging, Paul is teaching, Paul is expounding sound doctrine. That which we're reminded to guard, that which is of first importance, that which God has revealed to us most clearly in his son for our good and his glory. And about halfway through each letter, Paul moves from the doctrine we're called to guard to how we follow that, how we live, what difference it makes in the decisions we make in the lives that we live. And the letter he wrote to the church in Rome, though it's 16 chapters, is no different, right? First 11, guarding that good deposit. What is that good deposit? 
In chapters 12 through 16, he gets into how we follow, how it shapes our lives, how we apply it to the way we live. He gets into how we relate to one another in differences, how we relate to the government, how we relate to those that are are antagonistic to the church. He gets into all of it. And so as he makes that turn, just listen to him for a minute. In Romans chapter 12, verse 3, Paul says that by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So as he moves from this sound doctrine, this good deposit into how it shapes the way we live and we think, he reminds us from the very beginning that we have to have an accurate self-appraisal of ourselves. That we, in and of ourselves, simply don't know as much as we think we do. And so we start this application of the good deposit of the gospel to our lives and how we live together in the, with the attitude of humility. It starts there. He goes on to say in chapter 12, verses 9 through 11, let your love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Remember, he's writing to a local church, so he's talking right here about the love amongst God's people in a very real local church. And he says, your love for one another is not to be pretend. It's not, well, I can just deal with that person. I love them in Jesus. We all know what you mean when you say that. I come from the South. It's like, bless your heart. We know what that means in Tennessee. We know what you're actually saying. He says, no, your, your love needs to be genuine. Love one another with a brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. It means there is space amongst God's people in a local church for a very healthy and holy competition. But the competition is in how we continue to each raise the bar on how we love and serve and honor one another. And so he says, don't be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. So he's not looking for weak people, right? Got to hear Paul. There's a fervency and a passion and an affection that is meant to mark God's people as they love one another and in their love for one another and in this holy competition to love one another well. He continues in chapter 12 to say in verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. It's very important for Paul that as we continue to consider how we take these these sound words, this good deposit, this standard that shapes our lives and thinking, that as we begin to think about how we apply it to our lives and live together in the differences, that humility mark us. He keeps coming back to it. Because arrogance and pride, it, it undermines harmony. And so he's going to keep writing, and in our Bibles, it'll be in chapter 13, verse 8, Paul's going to say, owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So amongst God's people, he's still talking about here in the local church, we, we are in debt to one another, and the debt we have to each other is a debt of love. And if you think about it like a human, that's a significant statement, because It's in the local church that you and I get to see each other up close and personal in our best and in our worst. That's why he's talking about this. This is where we see it. This is where we live it. This is where we feel it. So having said all of those things, kind of setting the the, the pattern and the framework and the grounding here, 
In chapters 14 and 15, Paul tackles how fellow Christians, how fellow local church members handle the debatable issues that threaten to divide. He's going to get into things like government and all that kind of stuff, and there's all kinds of issues that existed in the church. He doesn't have enough parchment to write about all the issues, right? But he's going to tackle a couple, and so what are the issues that he tackles just so we can understand as we go? Well, there were different church members there in Rome who had different convictions in their heart around what foods they were free to eat and what festivals or days they were free or not free to actually honor. You know, Paul not making a case here for vegetarians having bad theology. Could be made, maybe, but that's not Paul's case. You see, there were some in the church who felt like certain foods, meat in particular, was clean, and others who felt like it was unclean. And the reason that existed is because back in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, God had said that there were certain foods that were unclean for his people to eat. And there was a whole pattern, a subsection of the law that God gave that were the cleanliness laws. And these cleanliness laws served a few purposes. One of them is it was a way for the national identity of God's people as a unit to be preserved while they were living in an area surrounded by other tribes and peoples. Even in seasons and times in their life when they were sent into captivity and they were under the occupation of foreign nations, it was these laws that would continue to separate them and cultivate and give the contours to their national identity, who they were as a people. But even more than that, it was a constant reminder, all the cleanliness laws, not just the food, but even the pattern of behavior they had to follow under certain circumstances. These cleanliness laws reminded God's people that we couldn't just walk into the presence of an eternally holy God without cleansing. That was being reminded to them over and over again, which is why it's so significant that when Jesus came, he declared those laws to be fulfilled in him. That he is the one that cleanses us and makes us presentable before a holy God. I mean, Mark 7, Jesus said, don't you see that whatever goes into a person from the outside can't defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart, come evil thoughts and sexual immorality and theft and on and on. And so here in Rome, there were some church members that did not feel free to eat the meat that most likely had been blessed in the marketplace under the name of Apollos or Zeus. Even in other cities and other regions, probably in Rome, some of it may have been used to offer sacrifices to false gods, then brought into the marketplace to sell. So some there in Rome didn't feel free to eat it, while others did. And if you keep reading Romans chapter 14, we'll look at it here in just a little bit, there were some who felt like there were certain days that were best to honor the Lord. You see, for centuries now, the Israelites had been honoring God on the Sabbath, which was a Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. And so when the message of Christ and the fullness of the gospel came, they believed in Jesus, they repented of their faith, and they said the best way to continue to honor God as God and what he has done is to continue the Sabbath. Well, the New Testament church began meeting on Sunday morning to honor the resurrection. And so now here in this church, there were some who said, you know, we just need to keep honoring the day that God had set apart, the day that our ancestors had been going. That's the best way to do it. And others say, no, the best way to do it is this way. This is what Paul is dealing with. And these aren't unimportant issues. 
they're all very important issues. And because they were important, they come with strong feelings and strong emotions and strong thoughts. And so the first thing I want us to see as we begin looking at Paul's instruction to the church is the big E on the I chart. Hopefully it'll give you pause to take a deep breath. And that's simply this. Don't be surprised by the presence of strong disagreement in the church. There is a massive diversity of background coming into these churches that Paul is writing to. Massive diversity of experience. Massive diversity of culture. Massive diversity of patterns of thinking. But they have all repented of their sins and are fixing their heart on Christ, that which is of first importance. And they're figuring out together how this standard of healthy, sound words, this good deposit shapes the way they think and then how they relate to each other. But much like us, this church in Rome wasn't always handling the differences well. You see, the disagreements can be there. That's okay. But they ought to have a different flavor about them than the disagreements we see amongst those that aren't members of God's family. And so the first thing that Paul says is how we relate, how, how we do this, what it looks like. It's somewhat surprising. If you look down at chapter 14, he says it in verse 5. First thing he says is, don't abandon conviction. Peace and harmony amongst God's people doesn't come by abandoning conviction. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind, Paul says. The solution, the the peace, the harmony, it's not found by losing opinions. Yes, less opinionated people are easier to get along with. Yes. Some of us for maybe sinful and maybe just less maturing patterns, we prefer to be less opinionated because it makes us easier to get along with. But Paul's saying this harmony and peace, it's it's not found at the sacrifice of opinion. In fact, Paul commands conviction for God's people. When he says that you should be fully convinced in your own mind, he's using the exact same word he uses earlier in Romans chapter 4, verse 21, where it says that Abraham grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's conviction. God is able to do that which he has promised. And my conviction that God is who he says he is, is who he has revealed himself to be, will be faithful as he has promised. That conviction... Paul says each of us to be fully convinced about these other issues in our own mind. So indifference to these things isn't an option. When it comes to some of these things, we we have to return to the scriptures and ask God for guidance. And as we do, we have to make sure that our conviction is clearly not sin. Right? Our conviction on a decide for or debatable matter clearly isn't sin. We have to look for that. If our conviction is that we're free to murder somebody or slander someone or lie about someone or something like that, we're wrong. All right? Wrong. So it's clearly not sin first. And secondly, as we do it, we can honor Jesus in it. And if we're sure it's clearly not sin and we feel that we can honor Jesus in it, we have to be able to say that we believe it's the best way for us to live as we can understand it right now. So don't abandon conviction. In fact, Come to a place of conviction in your own mind. 
But it's very important what Paul says next in verse 6. He says at the same time, don't abandon humility either. Paul says, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. Since he gives thanks to God while the other one abstains, he who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So Paul looks at them both and he says, remember, both are acting to honor Jesus and express thankfulness. Both are being faithful to Jesus. Both are being grateful. Both love Jesus. Both want to honor Jesus. Both believe they're living as an expression of that gratitude for Jesus. Now clearly, Paul is going to be of the mind and give his opinion that one position in this debate is weaker than the other. And it's very important because we hear those words with a lot of baggage and weight. Paul is not saying that one position in this one particular debate is weaker in faith about Jesus, is somehow weaker in saving faith, is somehow less secure in God's love because of what they believe. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that one person is understanding this saving faith, these sound words, this good deposit in such a way that they are able to live out a greater freedom in a certain area than another, right? Therefore, one person's application of that sound deposit is a little bit weaker in freedom than the other. That's what he's talking about. But he clearly loves them both. And he sees Jesus being honored in and through both. They're differing in what they've concluded will honor him the most. And so what Paul does for the church is he points out what's commendable about both. They both have a sincere love for Jesus because conviction without faith and humility and love, this is what Paul is modeling, this is what can begin to crush each other in our differences. They both have faith. They both have love. They're both seeking to honor Jesus. And guess what? I love the way he takes his argument. Remember, God can be glorified by both responses, just as he can be glorified by the extreme opposites of life and death. That's what he says in verses 7, 8, and 9. None of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself, for if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be both Lord of the dead and the living. What he's saying is, don't forget The worth of Jesus can be put on display by both. God is big enough to handle these differences, right? That's what Paul is reminding the church. So don't abandon conviction in the pursuit of harmony, but be careful, don't abandon humility either. Losing one or the other makes space for other dangers to thrive. Dangers like what? Self-righteousness favoritism, condemnation, the burdening of one another's hearts. This issue is bigger to Paul than whatever issue is being debated amongst God's people because the eternal realities are at stake. What's at stake in our love for one another? It's the power of God's saving grace being seen by a watching world. This is what Paul's more concerned about. He wants the power of the gospel to be put on display. So when he's instructing the church and what keeps them from letting the differences divide them, 
It should be of no surprise that as you read Romans 14, he takes them back to the gospel. The good deposit, the pattern of sound, nourishing words, the healthy truth we feast on. So he reminds them, just as God has welcomed you, welcome one another. Verse 1, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. That welcome is a huge word. It carries the weight of actually intentionally making space in your life and in your circle for this person. Paul is reminding the church the stability of our relationships are not built on our agreement on debatable issues. It's built on our mutual love for Jesus. It's so important to him. He comes back to it later in verse 18. He says, Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. He said, Remember, by by grace through faith, your sibling in Jesus has been accepted by God. That is God's verdict of them. So regardless of whatever your differences might be on debatable matters, he or she is loved and accepted by the Father through Jesus. John Stott will say it this way, indeed, the best way to determine what our attitude to others in the church should be is to determine what God's attitude of them is. This principle is better even than the golden rule. It's safe to treat others as we would like them to treat us, but it's safer still to treat them as God sees them. Therefore, do all that you can to not let your difference on debatable matters divide you. This welcome implies an intentional pursuit of staying close. Unless, of course, your standard for them is higher than God's. Welcome them. Secondly, let God be God. Let God be God. Let him be the judge. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. He picks it up again in verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. So each of us belongs to God, and God alone is the one we will have to give an account of ourselves to. It is not our place in these matters to set up our own judgment seat and then reject those that God has accepted by his grace. God's people are not free to make one another accountable to ourselves. Do you realize that when we establish this judgment seat of others in our own hearts, when we try to play the judge in these things, we're trying to be God without his eternal holiness, without his infinite omniscience, without his kindness, without his judgment, We are wholly unequipped for the very thing our heart is trying to do. Paul says, don't make space for it. We're simply not qualified. I actually believe here in this letter, Paul is trying to 
narrow and squeeze down any space that we try to create for statements like, you're not a follower of Jesus and voting for this person. Or you can't be a follower of Jesus and not have voted for this person. I think what Paul is saying is he's trying to close the space down for statements like that to have leeway amongst God's people. If you have a conviction, then vote that way. And at the same time, welcome your brothers and sisters into your life and into your space who differ with you. Listen, understand, talk about it. Don't abandon your conviction, but don't try to play God either. Welcome them. Pursue, Paul says, what makes for peace and upbuilding. This is what puts the power of the real Jesus on display. Lacking perfect knowledge and holiness and wisdom, it means in many things you and I are are going to be weaker and stronger. The problem is none of us ever think we're the weaker one. We never do. No, together as God's people, our responsibility is to help one another conform to the image of Jesus. Not argue and fuss and fight to convince each other to conform to our image. Remember, you and each one of us individually are going to have to give an account to God for our life. Let him be him. But not only that, letting him be him, rest in his faithfulness. Verse 4. He will be upheld, Paul says, for the Lord is able to make him stand. In the end, as brothers and sisters, when we each individually stand before God, both will stand in glory. Both will stand loved by God, forgiven in Jesus, welcomed and accepted because of God's power and grace. He is the one who will hold us. Which is why, as we continue and daily to focus on Jesus, to seek to see and enjoy Jesus, allow the Holy Spirit to continue to shape us into the image and likeness of Jesus. This ongoing work of fixing our hearts and minds on first things first, loving and being shaped by Jesus, it frees us to do a couple things. This is how we'll end. The first thing, it frees us up to let love rule in our relationships. It's the Kravitz law. I'm always looking for ways to work Lenny Kravitz into my sermons. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It's not good to eat meat or drink or wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Look, friends, is having that drink in your community group worth creating the distance that it might create in your brother who shares a difference in opinion? Listen, if you, if you had a particular conviction this past year in how you were to vote in our national election and you felt that in your conviction and your understanding of the situation, the right decision for you was to vote for Trump and you bought the hats and bought the shirt, is it really worth it to you to wear the hat and wear the shirt to your community group where a brother and sister that you love and serve the Lord with have a difference of opinion and it causes such animosity and strife? Is it really worth it to you? What's our freedom for if it's not for laying down out of love for one another? This is what Paul is talking about. Let let love be the rule amongst ourselves. Secondly, verse 22, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. You know what he's saying to us right now in the 21st century? Being shaped by the gospel, seeking to see and enjoy Jesus on a daily basis, our affections for Jesus growing daily as we see him in God's word. 
Man, you are free to think twice before you post something online. That's what he's saying. When it comes to debatable matters, they're important. They're not unimportant. But having a settled conviction is not the same as saying God told you to post something about it. These postings require discernment and wisdom and humility. Just listen to the wisdom of Solomon. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Friends, you're free to think twice before you put that thing online. And then listen, listen to how Paul ties it up. I'll let Paul tie it up. He carries it on to chapter 15 because our chapters and verse divisions are arbitrary in the original writing. He says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Friends, for this to be a reality amongst ourselves and our love for one another, we have to have his heart and mind on our lives and how we love. And for that to be a reality, we have to be about fixing our hearts on him daily. Being shaped and grooved by his grace. Being so convinced, not just in our mind, but so overwhelmed in our hearts of God's welcome and acceptance of us in Jesus. If that is our commitment, our commitment, and our hearts are heated by his love, we're all the more ready and willing to be shaped by his word on these matters and reflect his love to one another. And I just want you to know, your pastors are giving their lives to as best we can keep your eyes and your hearts fixed on Jesus. And what that means is that at times, we're going to say less about some of these things than you would want because they're not of first importance. At times, we're going to say more than you might wish we would. And we're going to say less than we might even think we should. But I think Kevin DeYoung was right in one of his recent articles. He, he said, it may be that your pastor is cowardly trying to make everyone happy. That won't work. But just consider it may be that he's trying to wisely shepherd a very diverse flock in a way that helps the sheep focus on Jesus and him crucified. Friends, we're together because we're united around Jesus And it's to him we have to keep our focus. It's to him we have to remain anchored. So it's to God and his word that we turn and we trust. That's why Paul wrote, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. We can't find the encouragement and the hope we need in the days we live anywhere else. Friends, when the needle of tension and discouragement drops on the record of our lives. May God make the most beautiful, irresistible song of grace ring out because the gospel has shaped the most perfect groove in our heart. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Let me pray for us and we'll respond. Father, it takes the ongoing work of your Holy Spirit to work the mind and the heart of your Son into our heart 
that we might, yes, come to a greater confidence in who you are and who you have continued to be for us, that our hearts might be increasingly warmed by your grace, but at the same time, we would come to a clear conviction on how your gospel is to shape the way that we live. And when we come to that conviction and we find that it differs with a brother or sister in Christ, it's that same gospel that has shaped our thinking and our emotion and our heat that then shapes how we love one another. For this to be the reality, you've got to do an ongoing work in us. And it's to this we ask and we plead that you would do by your Holy Spirit for Jesus' good name. Lord, please do this work in us. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.